Good morning, everyone. My name is Larry Kay, and, I'll, and I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April 24th, 2016. The share ID for uh, Friday, April 22nd, is 8684. That's uh, 8684. And this morning, A Vision for You presents From Hopelessness to Happiness. You know, when we arrive to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, uh, we're often confused, perhaps scared at the prospect of change and wondering if any sort of, of real transformation is, is even possible for us. In step one, of course, we admit that we are, are powerless over food and that our lives have become unmanageable. And the big book uh, does remind us that what is required to get across this bridge to freedom is a, a transformation of thought and attitude, which leads then to a spiritual awakening through the through these steps in this process that we call recovery. And in the face of this seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body, we're confronted with a dilemma. We've got a problem. And it says that lack of power, that was our dilemma. In the chapter, We Agnostics, the, the, the text states that after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. And by following this practical program of action, Navigating through these steps, we become transformed. We move from a self-centered existence to a higher power-centered existence. We are, we are awakened from our spiritual slumber. And here to speak this morning on how she made this transformation from hopelessness to happiness is Lisa H. from Tennessee. And Lisa is, is dedicated to the 12 steps, and she's committed to this, this design of, of, of living. And so it is my pleasure to welcome Lisa from Tennessee, Lisa H. Lisa, are you on the line? I am. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is Lisa H., um, grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater just for today, um, calling from Memphis, Tennessee. And, and I have to say thank you to Leah for asking um, and a vision for you for the opportunity to share my story um, Melanie, for your service, your early service today, and, and thank you, Larry, for moderating today. Um, and I'll just, I'll just begin um, by, by one of my favorite um, sort of prayers. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. My earliest memory of using food for comfort was at about age eight or somewhere between uh, second and third grade. I remember going to the pantry and always choosing something sweet. Um, At that time, it was either Twinkies or Oreos. Um, I would take it and hide somewhere in our enormous house um, to be alone and eat it. I believe that I probably learned some of these behaviors, some of these eating behaviors from my dad. Um, who used alcohol some, but mostly food to combat life's stresses. Um, I grew up the middle of five children in in a staunchly Catholic household. Um, When my siblings were getting into trouble, uh, I was the one who was occasionally seen but never heard. I had this idea that if I misbehaved, that God would strike me down. This lie stuck with me for a long time. I believe I truly had an idyllic uh, childhood as I had parents that loved each other and loved all of us very much. From here, 
I see that what I wanted was attention and praise and affirmation. Um, and if I didn't get it or didn't get what I wanted, I would get angry and, and use food to stuff, stuff down my angry feelings. Um, I never learned how to express or articulate negative feelings, particularly in my case, anger, um, nor did it feel safe to be, to be angry in my home. Um, about third grade, uh, my family moved to a new home in a new town, and um, a memory that stands out for me is, is when my next-door neighbor um, started calling me Thundersize uh, because I was a muscular kid. Um, but this began a lifelong comparison of my body to others um, and, and a, loathing, uh, a loathing of my size. And mind you, I was a perfectly normal weighted child. Um, but as the years passed, I found myself always a little heavier than my classmates. Um, also during this time, my dad was working um, in a business that he would eventually sell working all the time, a lot, you know, hours and hours. And my mom was at home trying the best she could to raise five children. Um, there was great financial strain in our home at this time, which my parents tried to shield us from as best they could. It was about this time I remember um, eating breakfast at home and then going to school and eating breakfast again. I would get a donut as if I hadn't had breakfast. Um, one of my best friends at the time was overweight, and I guess this is in the late 70s, um, and she started going to Weight Watchers. I went with her to a meeting, and then we would go out with friends to the ice cream shop, and she would say, I can't have this, but you can. Um, so, of course, I did. Um, in the 10th grade, uh, my family moved across the country, and I was devastated leaving my friends and, and my first true love. Um, I found solace, of course, in food, particularly sugar. Uh, when I started at my new school, the school nurse uh, wanted, me to, wanted to put me on a diet. So this is about age 16. Um, when I remember weighing 135 pounds, and, and I'm about five foot four. The thing I remember so vividly about this interchange with the nurse is that she was obese, and she wanted to put me on a diet. And I walked away angry, so angry, thinking I'll show her. Um, although I was a tennis player and fairly active, my, my sweet eating slowly continued to add, add weight year after year. Looking back, I could never eat just one, um, I would typically go back to the bag or the box again and again uh, until it was empty. During my high school years, my dad would come home touting the latest weight loss scheme, and, and I would start it with him, and, and it usually only lasted a few days. Um, my, my self-loathing began to increase, as did the size of my thighs. I had two sisters who were of normal weight, and I would constantly compare myself to them and actually compare myself to every other woman I saw, comparing my size to theirs and, and condemning myself, really, for my lack of control uh, around the food. When I went off to college, my eating and weight really began to escalate. Um, I no longer had my parents 
controlling or monitoring what and when I ate. In college, while my friends were on dates and at fraternity parties, I stayed at home and studied and ate. In my sorority, every time you got a gift, it was loaded with candy, particularly M&Ms, which were one of my favorites. Where most girls would make theirs last four weeks, mine would only last a few days. We used to have these secret gatherings where the main attraction was every kind of sugary item you can imagine. And it was laid out on this big, long sheet in the middle of this dark room lit with candles. And, and it was, this was a field day for me. Um, I began then, I think, to, to hide sweets and eat them in secret, you know, because if no one saw me eat it, it didn't really count. And here began another one of the lies that I would tell myself about food. Also at this time, um, bulimia was sort of the trend amongst college women. And of course, I gave that a try, but realized quickly that I just could not make myself throw up on a regular basis. Um, Just before I graduated from nursing school, uh, I went to the doctor for a yearly checkup. And... I took one look at the scale and thought, oh my God, I'm getting close to 200 pounds. What am I going to do? My family didn't know what to do or how to help me. But more times than I care to remember, I would hear, you would be so pretty if you would just lose some weight. And I don't want you to end up like your Aunt Mary, who, by the way, died of this disease at over 400 pounds. And the worst came from my beloved uncle who said to me, there is no reason for you to be fat. Up to that point, he was the greatest man I knew next to my dad. And so began a resentment that I held on to for some 30 years. But more on that later. A college graduate, age 22, and the number on the scale continuing to rise, I decided I had to do something. As I was no longer studying, I could now focus on myself and on weight loss. I started exercising and joined a nationally known weight loss program. I even went to work in a doctor's office that was selling a weight loss shake, which I used to lose some weight, and didn't stay with the shakes or the job for very long. I became obsessed with the number on the scale. I would weigh myself daily, always hoping that I was losing weight. The scale just fueled my anger and self-loathing. If it was down, I was happy, and I would reward myself, usually with some sugar. If it was up, I would think, oh, what the heck, I'm going to eat whatever I want. I spent several years counting calories and trying to avoid sweets, but at the first sign of stress or hardship, I would load up on Oreos, cookie dough, and of course, M&Ms. And I just knew and would think to myself that tomorrow would be different. Tomorrow I would buckle down and lose weight. Um, I was just sure if I could get to a normal weight, I would be happy. There there was another lie that that I would try to prove as true for another two and a half decades. A few years passed and I was able to lose some weight. It was around this time that I met my now husband. 
At that time, he had been a recovered alcoholic for two years. He is recovered still now for 30 years. Here was my savior. He was an avid exerciser and loved sweets. What could be better? Being the people pleaser that I was, I started exercising with him, but of course found that I could eat more if I exercised more. We married in 1988, and I was the smallest I had been since I was a teenager. Over the next several years, I continued to lose weight by restricting and over-exercising. If I could make the outside look good, surely the inside would follow. Because if your outside looked good, you surely must have it all together. And so it went. Over the next 10 years, my weight continued to fluctuate, up 25 pounds and down 25 pounds. I had two pregnancies during that time, and the lie about pregnancy, of course, I could eat whatever I wanted and as much as I wanted. Well, you can imagine then what, then what happened after I was no longer pregnant, a trip back to my favorite weight loss program. I attempted to be super mom, super wife, super volunteer. If I was busy enough, I would not hear the food calling to me. If I received enough affirmation in these roles, I would be happy. I was constantly restless, irritable, and discontent, but didn't know why or what to do about it. I went to several psychologists. The first gave me a book on anger, which was of no help. The second one told me to write a letter to my thighs, apologizing for my treatment of them. Seriously? But the diagnosis was always anger. But again, everything I tried eased it only temporarily. Then I began to think that my irritability was surely my husband's fault. (laughs) So I tried to go to Al-Anon. And I thought if I could fix him, that that would fix my anger and my food problem. I even got a sponsor in Al-Anon and went to work and started to work the steps. But of course, when I got to step four, I left, as I was obviously not ready to look at my side of the street. It was just easier to blame my husband for everything. In 1999, I remember being so tired of trying to be so perfect. The perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect friend, having the perfect family, living in the perfect neighborhood, having the perfect home. It was all just a facade. I did not I didn't know how to articulate my feelings especially negative ones. One fateful afternoon my husband and I got in an argument and I just exploded. That's the only way I can describe how I felt and how I screamed at him. My inability to be honest about my anger and effectively communicate my communicate anger and my needs almost cost me my marriage. We ended up in marriage counseling for the better part of a year. And for the first time, actually, with some help, I was able to look at my side of things when it came to my anger and my marriage. But this did nothing to help my constant obsession with food and my weight. But it did require me to concentrate on something else for a time. While I was a stay-at-home mom, I even tried to go to work 
as a leader at the same nationally known weight loss program that I had been a member of because surely if I was be, if I was able to be a leader in this in this uh, work at this place this would fix my weight problem but the minute I got 2 pounds over my goal weight I knew I couldn't continue so I quit I can remember coming home from these meetings and saying to my husband I'm so tired of hearing and talking about food. Nobody talks about the mental part of it. So I knew that I had a mental obsession, but I could not find a way to stop the obsession with eating, weight loss, diet, exercise programs, and the self, self-loathing that went with it. I did try once um, several years ago to go to a local OA meeting. Um, And when I showed up, I was the only one there. So I thought, well, the heck with it, and went back to doing what I was doing before. I have a dear friend um, whom I'll call Kathy, who was also significantly overweight and would try every new diet, read every new diet book, and I would do it with her only to lose weight, lose a bit of weight, but return to my sugar eating in a short time. In addition, I read self-help books, spiritual books. I was at the church every time the doors opened. I participated in Bible studies, small groups, spiritual direction, silent retreats, thinking again, surely if I was faithful enough, that would fix the problem I had with food. The one thing that, that all this church involvement did help me with was dispelling my idea of an angry God. I came to understand that God was a loving, forgiving God, but I also had the feeling that God was out there, uh, out of reach, so to speak. My husband and children were very supportive of me as they watched me put down the sugar and pick it back up again and again and again and again. Many times I would get to go weight and think, I've made it. But the minute I started adding in the foods I had been abstaining from, I was off to the races and back up 20 to 25 pounds in no time. I was in a hopeless cycle of losing and gaining, and I felt like I was crazy. I began to look forward to events such as weddings, church and school functions, and book club night not because of the people that would be there, but because of the food that would be there. I couldn't walk down the grocery, the aisles of the grocery store without the candy calling my name. When my children got old enough, I went back to work. So here was my answer. I would be too busy to eat too much. But I would come home, I I would be tired and stressed and think to myself, what can I eat to make myself feel better? and the obsession would continue. I lived in a self-imposed world of criticism, self-condemnation, and comparison, um, and it was exhausting, trying to look good on the outside while slowly dying on the inside. In uh, 2007, um, when my dad died suddenly, I was plunged into a world of grief like I had never known. The only source of solace I knew was food. 
And so I used food, particularly sugar, to cope with the immense emotions that came with the loss of my dad. I tried mightily to to draw near to God, but was so blocked by so many feelings. I continued to live in what I have come to call my carbohydrate stupor. That was eight years ago now, and every year on the anniversary of his death, I would avoid feeling sad or anything really and numb myself with sugar. Of course, the problem with numbing my uncomfortable emotions was that I was also numbing happiness and joy. A little more than two years ago, my mother-in-law became ill and died within three months' time. We were devastated, and again, to avoid feeling, I ate. A spiritual friend and mentor of mine suggested a therapist that she knew, so I thought, well, what the heck, maybe this, is, maybe this time it will be different. I came home from seeing him the first time, and my husband said to me, how was it? And I said, well, this won't surprise you. He says I'm angry. So again, I tried his suggestions to deal with my anger. First, he said to draw my anger. I wish you could see the picture of me that I drew with the top of my head blowing off and the picture of a very large bonfire. He also suggested that I write a letter to each person I was angry at which I did, and then ceremoniously burned them in my backyard. This felt liberating for a time. I even purchased a child's soccer boppet. If y'all can remember what this is, it's a little punching bag that's filled with sand and air, and I would work at punching this punching bag a few times a week, again, only temporarily relief. The greatest relief I found was in the food. I always found it easier to love others rather than myself. Where I got the idea that I was never enough, pretty enough, thin enough, smart enough, I have no idea. But this never being enough plagued me and fueled the comparison of myself to others. Again, if I could look like you or had what you had, I would be happy. I had this idea that I was always being judged by others, by how I looked on the outside, when in reality, I was judging myself and condemning myself. Then in July of 2014, my friend Kathy asked me if I would go with her to an OA meeting. Of course, I went to support her, and so I agreed to go with her. Um, We went to this OA meeting, and the discomfort I felt in the meeting, I will not easily forget. I remember thinking, I'm not, surely I'm not as bad off as these people. Um, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Um, But I did go home with a newcomer packet. But one week later, Kathy's son was diagnosed with leukemia. So neither of us went back to OA. As I was not working at the time, I spent hours and days with my friend at the hospital while her son underwent treatment. I began to feel that I would never solve my food obsession. Now, living in an empty nest and not working, 
I had lots of time to feel what I did not want to feel. I began to buy chocolate and candy every time I went to the grocery store, hide it in the kitchen drawer, and consume most of it in a few hours' time. If there was no candy in the house, I would often make a trip to the Walgreens to get some, and of course, always getting a few extra things so it didn't look like I was just buying candy. My husband had decided some years previously to stop eating sugar. He had been in the habit of eating two candy bars after dinner every night. So at least for a time, I was in good company. He decided to have dessert only one night on the weekend and over time lost 20 pounds. I decided to do the same. Only the lie was I would eat dessert with him on the weekend and continue to have sugar every day of the week. Again, my perpetual lie, if no one saw me eat it, then it didn't really count. This behavior went on for months. I felt myself sinking deeper and deeper into a pit of hopelessness and self-pity. With the new year, 2015, came all the ads about this diet or that, this exercise gym or that, I knew that diets worked, but for me, only for a short time, as I could never maintain the weight that I lost. For my birthday, which was a few days before the new year, my friend Kathy gave me a set of very small journals, one for each month. In January, in January 1, I began to write a gratitude list every night before I went to bed. I would look back at my day and list all the people, places, and things I was grateful for. This was the beginning of the loosening of my self-absorption. Realizing I had to do something about my weight, other than start another diet, I pulled out the newcomer packet from OA and began reading the pamphlet to the newcomer. In it, there is a series of 15 questions. In fact, If you've not read them before, they go like this. Do you eat when you, do I eat when I'm not hungry or eat when my body needs nourishment? Two, do I go on eating binges for no apparent reason, sometimes eating when I'm stuffed or even feel sick? Three, do I feel feelings of guilt, shame, or embarrassment about my weight or the way I eat? Four, do I eat sensibly in front of others and make up for it when I am alone? Five, is my eating affecting my health or the way I live my life? Six, when my emotions are intense, whether positive or negative, do I find myself reaching for food? Seven, do do my eating behaviors make me or others unhappy? Eight, do I have, have I ever used laxatives, vomiting, diuretics, excessive exercise, diet pills, shots, or other medical interventions, including surgery to control my weight? Nine, do I fast or severely restrict my food intake to control my weight? Ten, do I fantasize about how much better life would be if I were to be a different size or weight? Eleven, do I need to do I need to chew or have something in my mouth at all times? Food, gum, mints, candy, or beverages. Twelve, do I ever have I ever eaten what is burned, frozen, or spoiled from containers in the grocery store or out of the garbage? 
13, are there certain foods I can't stop eating or have after having the first bite? 14, have I lost weight with a diet or period of control while only to be followed by bouts of uncontrolled eating or weight gain? And 15, do I spend much of my time thinking about food, arguing with myself about whether or not, whether or what to eat, planning the next diet or exercise cure or counting calories? It goes on to say, if you have answered yes to several of these questions, it is possible that you have or are well on your way to having a compulsive eating problem. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I answered yes to almost every question. Here was my answer, Overeaters Anonymous. I had to find out more about OA. I went back to the face-to-face meeting that I had gone to months before. It was a small meeting with only one recovered sponsor who was sponsoring half of those in attendance. I walked out of that meeting knowing I needed more. I went home and Googled OA and discovered phone meetings. I began to listen to a variety of phone meetings, and then I found this meeting a vision for you. I began to listen every day. I heard people talking about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and that you could substitute the word food for alcohol and compulsive overeater for alcoholic while reading the text. When I began listening, you all were studying in we agnostics, but I kept hearing about the doctor's opinion. I realized I needed to start from the beginning. So I went back and started listening to meetings from the doctor's opinion. In the pages of the doctor's opinion, I learned that more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached and that I have a twofold disease, an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. I always knew I had a mental obsession, but this allergy of the body was an entirely new concept for me. And here I was living with a recovered alcoholic for decades with a big book on the shelf, but I had no clue it was the stepping stone to recovery for compulsive overeaters. But you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And so it was for me with the big book. From page XXX in the doctor's opinion, it reads, then there are types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol or food in our case has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking or eating without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. I had an allergy to sugar, and every time I ingested it, the phenomenon of craving would develop, and I could not stop. 
nor could I stop from starting again. So I set about making a very detailed list of my alcoholic binge foods. I wrote the date at the top of the page and decided just for that day I was not going to have any of those foods. About four days in, I was visiting my friend Kathy and her son at the hospital, and I said to her, something is wrong with me. I have such a headache. I'm so tired and I'm so irritable. And she said to me, Lisa, it's the sugar, which of course she was correct about. I was having physical withdrawal symptoms from the sugar. My symptoms lasted about a week. At the end of that week, I felt like a different person. It was as if I had emerged from a sugar coma and was seeing everything with new eyes. I kept that list on my kitchen table for weeks as a reminder. I would get in the shower every day and say, God, just for today, help me to be abstinent. Thy will, not mine, be done. This was my beginning. The second thing that came out of the doctor's opinion from page XXIX says this, unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. And once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. And I thought, bring on the rules, or as we know, the steps. I had heard in AA, um, they say go to 90 meetings in 90 days. So I set out to either go to a meeting or listen to a meeting every day. Some days I listened to two meetings. The more I listened, the more I realized this was the solution to my eating problem, my living problem. With 30 days of abstinence from my binge foods, I left my name and number at the end of the second hour of vision that I was in need of a sponsor. I was so, so eager to work the steps and experience this psychic change. A few days later, I connected with a woman who would become my sponsor and an amazing guide. At her suggestion, I immersed myself in the program of recovery. I began to understand that I had to trust God, clean up the past, and help others. For me to stay abstinent, I had to begin to connect with my higher power every day, many times a day. With each step, I read and listened and tried to learn everything I could about that step. I would go back and listen to special editions related to each step that I was on. I could finally identify in. Someone else was telling my story. Without the numbing of sugar to my system, I began to have a clarity of thought that I had never had before. I finally was able to admit that I was powerless, that on my own and of my own, 
I could do nothing to change my mental obsession and compulsive eating behaviors. As it says on page 45 in We Agnostics, our human resources as marshaled marshaled by the will were not sufficient. They failed utterly. It goes on to say, lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. It had to be a power greater than ourselves. The chapter, We Agnostics, expanded the concept of higher power for me. On page 46 at the bottom of the page, it says, we found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men, and I would say to all women. My higher power, whom I, who I call God, began to open wide the eyes of my soul, and I was able to surrender all that I have and all that I am to move forward in this process. In order for me to recover, I would have to be rigorously honest through the entire process and be willing to change, change my thoughts and my behaviors. I came to understand that my higher power cared about every aspect of my life, even something I thought as insignificant, such as my food. I I became willing to go to any lengths to get the happiness and even the joy I heard on this line. From my sponsor and so many others on the line, I heard like Bill W. W heard the point blank declaration that God could do for him or had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human human will had failed. My ego and self-centeredness had to be smashed so that I could pick up this spiritual toolkit, these steps. It did not take me long to make the decision in step three to move on to the action steps. In step four, I used the form outlined in the big book with some help from another step study book. I would sit at my dining room table and say a prayer that God would show me all the people and places and things to which I had become resentful, working one column at a time at a sitting, moving through causes and effects, then to my core defects. Again, honesty and thoroughness was my goal, no matter what. Upon finishing my resentments, I moved to fear, to the fear inventory, then sex conduct. I finally had such clarity of thought that I could face my part in things. I learned that beneath my anger was fear. And the fear of not being worthy or loved drove me to act insanely with the food. When it came to step five, it took several phone calls for me to completely give this all to my sponsor. I told her everything and many things I had never shared with anyone but I had to get it all up 
and out. In addition, <clears throat> it felt important to me to do as it says on page 74, uh, those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requ- requires confession must and, of course, will want to go to the properly appointed authorities whose duty it is to receive it. <clears throat> I happen to have a friend who was a priest who was also a, a recovered alcoholic, so I knew he would understand the importance of this process. The big book goes on to say on page 75, Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. And this is how it happened for me. The heaviness within me had begun to ease, but I knew I had to keep working. My sponsor and I discussed and prayed together through steps six and seven. My ego was finally deflating, and again, the weight on my shoulders began to ease. I should also mention here that with my abstinence from sugar and most flour and following a food plan designed for me, my physical weight also began to fall. But it was no longer about the food. It was about working the steps to arrest this disease. I thought it important to begin doing service. So I asked to do anything I could, which was to begin reading the steps and traditions at A Vision for You. As soon as I had six months of abstinence, I asked to be a big book reader, which I found growth-producing every time I do it. (coughs) Excuse me. I don't think I've ever talked this long for this length of period of time. Uh, Making a list of those I had harmed was not difficult because I had made it when I took inventory. But the thought of making amends to all did did engender some fear for me. I remember my sponsor saying that fear is never from God. So I prayed fervently that my fear would be taken away. Many of my amends were in letter form as I did not know if or when I would see many of the people again. With each letter, a new sense of freedom and happiness began to fill me. I knew I could let go of my resentments whether or not I received a reply. I wrote to all of my siblings, knowing I would see them sometime in the future, and at that time they could ask me anything they wanted. I made face-to-face amends to my children and my husband. I will continue to make living amends to my children as I taught my daughter to be a people pleaser and I taught my son to be a compulsive overeater and, of course, to my husband with whom I live now. My dear husband, who watched me struggle with the food and forgave me again and again, 
for my dishonest, manipulative behavior, was able to listen with love and understanding and forgiveness. And quite honestly, he then understood why I was unable to change my behavior. Because when I was numbed with food, I was in denial about my dishonest, selfish, and self-centered behavior. You have heard it said, I didn't know what I didn't know, and I couldn't see what I couldn't see, and that was me until now. On page 74 of the big book, it tells us, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see our experience can benefit others. That feeling of usefulness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. My last demand was to my beloved uncle, who I told you at age Uh, at age 19, said to me, there is no reason for you to be fat. I had held on to this resentment for so long. I didn't even go to his daughter's wedding because of it. I knew I had to make this amend in person. I didn't know if he would understand, but I knew I had to do it all the same. I had the opportunity to make this amend after a trip I took with my sisters and my mom to Italy while you all were at the convention last year. Our trip ended in New York City where my uncle and my aunt lived. I had let them know weeks before that I would like to see them and spend the night before going home. They were delighted to have me. We went out to dinner and I proceeded to make my amends really to them both. I was due to leave the next morning, and that morning before I left, my uncle said to me, said thank you to me for having made amends. He had understood, thank God. The other wonderful thing that came out of the trip with my sisters was when my younger sister said to me, the whole trip, You weren't tempted, you didn't waver, you weren't even interested in sweets. All I could say is that it was a gift from God. As it says on page 84 in the big book, we react sanely and normally. We find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor, sugar in my case, has been given with us without any thought or effort. On our part, it just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither we are avoiding temptation. temptation. We feel as though we've been 
placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem had had been removed. It does not exist for us. My older sister simply said to me, your anger is gone. And I say, this brings tears to my eyes because this is what I wanted all along. I just didn't know how to get there until I came to a vision for you and started doing this work. I had recovered and with God's grace found a new power, peace and happiness and sense of direction flowed into me like it says on page 50. I could honestly say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of my life, like it says on page 51. But I do know, I do know I'm recovered and never cured. And the work or action for me continues. I began, to con- I began by continuing to work steps 10, 11, and 12 every day. <clears throat> Following the directions in the book, book, big book from page 84, we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God to remove them at once. And then these things, and these things do crop up. And of course, because of course, I'm only human. I have some program fellows that I can call to walk through this 10th step turnaround process, but I can always use some more. I also do a nightly review at the end of each day. Another thing my sponsor often said is we can't rest on our laurels. Page 85 tells us we are cured. We are not cured of alcoholism or compulsive overeating. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we can carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I serve thee best? Thy will, not mine, be done. For me to stay in fit spiritual condition, I have to begin my day with prayer and meditation. Prayer for me is speaking to God and meditation is listening for that still small voice within, which is God as I understand him. Pausing throughout my day and listening for divine inspiration. For me, I have to give away what I have received by sponsoring and making outreach calls and carrying the message locally as best I can. Today, I live in a healthy, normal-sized body something I never thought possible. In the past six months, I have, had the, I have had the anniversary of my dad's death 
the anniversary of my mother-in-law's death, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, my birthday, and Easter. All abstinent because I have found a new way to live. But life will continue to bring challenges, changes, and disappointments. Family and friends may get sick and some may die. But I have learned to navigate life with a divine director and have a happiness beyond my wildest dreams. And for this, I am eternal, eternally grateful. And with that, I pass. Lisa, thank you so much for such an inspiring uh, story of transformation and hope. And, um, you know, Lisa's contact information will be provided after the recorded uh, portion of this meeting. And so now we're going to transition to uh, an opportunity to pose questions for Lisa. And just a reminder that you can unmute by pressing star one. So who has a question for Lisa? Katie G from Boston. Okay, I got Larry, Katie. can you hear me? Oh, okay, I can. Yeah, I got Katie. Anybody else? Kim L. from South Carolina. Kim L. And who else? Okay, let's get started with uh, Katie. Followed from by... I'm sorry, who is that? Judy Charles, from, from South Carolina. Okay, I got Charles. And that was that Judy? Yes, Judy M.C., South Carolina. <laughs> okay. Sue and from Florida. Else? Sue? Sue from Florida. Sue B. from Florida. Oh, great, Sue. I got you. Anybody else? Thank you. Sure. Okay, let's let's start with, with uh, the first few questions here, Lisa. Um, so we have Katie G. Hey, Katie. Hey, Larry. Can you hear me? I can. Awesome. Uh, hey, guys. Katie G. Recovered. Anarchic bulimic compulsive overeater. Lisa, it was just a delight to hear you, and um, I loved your insights, especially like as you um, go through the, you know, knowing that this is a more complex issue. And um, I know you you spoke very well to like what happens, you know, when you continue um, after you've done the steps once. And I just, I guess, if you have any experience. Um, I love to hear about people's experiences with uh, character defects that continue to come up over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, so if you could please talk about any experience you have with that and kind of what your process is um, if you do. And thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. Can I still be heard? You can, Lisa. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Larry. Um, <laughs> that's a great question, Katie, because, you know, my, one of my biggest um, character defects, which honestly um, still comes back up, is is anger and resentment. Um, and there are other things, um, particularly that one. Um, <clears throat> and having um, worked these steps, I actually am able to catch myself most of the time um, before I respond um, with word and, and pen, word or pen, as one of my dear friends <laughs> tells me. Um, and so um, one of the things I, you know, one of the things, of course, it says is to ask God to remove 
that resentment um, right away. So I try to do that. Um, but I have to go on to, to reach out to somebody, to talk to my sponsor, to um, walk through. You know, sometimes I have to get out that form, that resentment form, write it down, write the cause, how it affects me, um, you know, what my part is in it. Um, there's, there's real power for me to um, saying that out loud to somebody else. Um, you know, by doing this too and, and refraining from acting on it, it does, um, it does keep me from having to, to make amends. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a, a big one that comes up for me. Um, certainly fear is another one. I find that um, when fear does come up, um, that to me is, is, I guess, when I pray about that. And, and one of the things I remind myself, and I said before, that fear is never from God. I can I say to myself, fear is never from God. Repeat it, fear is never from God. This is my ego coming in. This is not from God. So that's a little bit easier to let go of um, than the, than the um then the anger part, um, a couple of the other big ones for me is, um, is control, um, feeling like, and this particularly probably comes up with my children <clears throat> because for many, many years I controlled or tried to control what they did, where they went, what they did, you know, how, um, the things that they um, were active in, and so now I find myself, even when they ask me and they, you know, if it's about a job or a relationship and they start to complain and fuss and carry on, I, I have to stop myself from um, telling them what to do um, or trying to control what they do. Um, and I recall recently that um, my daughter was doing this and I was just you know, and this was totally, it had to have been divinely inspired because all I could, I responded to her was, you'll figure it out. And that was completely new behavior for me. That's all I've got. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Katie. And uh, next we'll have Kim followed by Charles. Kim, your turn. Kim, uh, we can't hear you. If you could press star one. Can you hear me now? I can. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks, Larry. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing your story. Um, every single thing you said could have been my story. It, it really touched my heart. Um, you kind of answered my question with the previous, uh, previously um, it's about your children. I was going to ask how you made amends to your children, and um, my situation is very similar as, as far as passing on the same characteristics to my children. One's a compulsive overeater, and they're both uh, people pleasers. But I wanted to know um, how you made your amends to your children and what your relationship with them is like, and I think you answered that a little bit before. And um, I also wanted to ask, how, how do you handle 
seeing the compulsive eater in your child and the people-pleasing part, how do you handle that? Um, I think that's about all I wanted to know. Thank you. Um, thank you, Kim. Um, both good questions because um, I'll tell you a little story that um, before I, uh, I don't, I can't remember where I was in my step process, but I was not at the amends making process. <clears throat> and um, I happened to go to, to start going to this local meeting and they, um, they use the uh, OA 12 step workbook, which is a really in depth uh, thing. But I, um, again, wanted to be, wanted to be active in my, in my area and, and try to carry the message. So I believe that book either was sitting on my kitchen table and my daughter now, now my daughter is now just turned 26. <clears throat> so this was maybe a, a year plus ago and, she walked in and saw the title of that book and she said to me, mom, you're not an overeater. Um, and so, uh, and I wasn't quite ready at that point to, um, to make my amends. You know, I just hadn't gotten there. And I said, well, I said, I really, um, I don't handle sugar very well. I think that's what I said to her. Um, but but I, and I, I really had to put it off. I just had to say we um, we need to have more conversation about this later because um, I also think her boyfriend might have been present um, at the time, and I really wasn't ready to to talk to it in front of him. Um, so I will say with my daughter, um, <laughs> my my living amends to her um, because she doesn't have a compulsive eating problem. And so um, really what I, what I tell her often is that I did not model no well, um, because every time someone asked me to do something, I would do it. Um, one of my other, one of the other ways that I avoid my feelings is to be busy and, and fill my time with doing things for other people, you know, and, and uh, and of course, the, the the defect there is that I am looking for it's the people pleasing thing, but I'm looking for affirmation and and praise and um, and I don't need that from people anymore. But um, so I have to, I just have to try to be an example for her that it's okay to say no, that it's okay um, not not to not to be the people pleaser. Um, and she's going to have to figure that out. Um, but we talk about that. We talk about the people-pleasing part more than we talk about the food, at least with my daughter. Um, so, and again, to be honest, I'm not really sure that she understands. Um, now, we just celebrated her birthday. And I bought cupcakes because that's what she asked me to provide. And... We were all there together, and she said, which one are you going to have, Mom? And I said, um, actually, I'm not going to have one. You know, so, so whether she really has grasped it, but again, um, the food piece for her is not, the, is not a big deal. That's not an issue with her. But with my son, <clears throat> I kept thinking that making amends to my husband would be the most difficult 
Um, and it was, but, but making amends to my son was equally as difficult because I taught him, um, I taught him compulsive overeating and he probably is about 40 to 50 pounds overweight. Um, and when I, when I made amends to him now, he is 22. Um, and and I, I, I just laid it all out for him. I mean, I said, I, I am sorry that I showed you that I modeled this behavior. And, and interestingly enough, because my husband is a recovered alcoholic, my son was way more concerned with the fact that he was not an alcoholic. Um, so I know that, and he doesn't live with me anymore. Um, and so he's, he's on his own now. Um, but we have had conversations um, several times about about the eating behavior, um, and and um, I can only model, you know, model better behavior and and talk about. We have talked about, um, you know, he he had some trouble and got in trouble, and I said to him, "Where?" where is the power that is outside yourself that you rely upon during times like this? And he said, I don't have one, um, which, which just about broke my heart. But, um, you know, he, he, anyway, our conversations will continue. Um, and he, you know, he's now on his own path and, and, the best I can do is talk about it when the opportunity presents itself and um, and model different behavior. I hope that helps. Thank, Thanks Thank for you the very question, much. Kim. Okay. Uh, so next we have Charles followed by Judy. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for your service. And Lisa, thank you for your service. Charles H. from New York. Um, Thank you. You took me through your whole life, and it, it just—it was beautiful. I love that transformation. Um, I was wondering. Um, you talked about page eighty-four. You talked about step ten. You talked about step eleven. You talked about gossiping. I was wondering. Um, even still, um, like say for example, you go through your day, and you, you really don't feel that you you had any fears or, you, like, you coasting through the day. And, you know, at night, my, so my question is at night, and even if you feel that you didn't have any fears or you didn't harm anybody or you wasn't resentful, you wasn't inconsiderate, um, these three questions in particular on page 86 when it says, when we retire, when we retire at night, um, do you catch um, in that net of questions in particular um, these three questions, uh, were we kind and loving towards all? What could we have done better? And were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? I, I'd like to see if you could elaborate on that for me. Thank you. Um, Charles, thank you for your question. Um, I, I just have to back up and tell you one thing. When I started listening to a Vision for You meeting, when people spoke and they said things that spoke to me, I wrote their name down. And and Charles, yours was yours was one of those um, names that's in my book. Um, I've been listening to you for a long time and appreciate um, appreciate everything. Um, and and so 
um, the review, the nightly review. Um, a lot of times what I do because I am usually so tired and ready to go to sleep <laughs> um, at night when I'm in bed, I sort of do my daily review earlier in the evening so that I have, so that I'm still um, have my um, clarity of thought um, and, and look back at my day. Um, and, you know, I would say that the challenge is um, to, I mean, often I, I try to, I do have a form that I fill out um, that I, that I still send to my sponsor um, and so a lot of times if, if I've had a resentment, I've already done a 10th step, I will put that in there. Um, but I like to answer those questions. Um, there are days that, um, that I look back and I, I can't find a particular, um, fear or resentment. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of times when I'm thinking about myself, um, I, the, the hardest time of day for me historically around the food was between 3 and 5 p.m. Um, and so um, I, have, I have started calling that sort of time. I'm looking for a divine diversion during that time. And a lot of times that's when I'll sit down and look at my day. Um, but it does require um, some real quiet and, and self-reflection because there are days when I don't feel like I've been afraid um, and, you know, and, and had resentments. But one of the things, you know, that I heard in a special edition was this idea of um, doing these 10-step turnarounds and um, doing them with my sponsees. And um, I think the more that I, the more that I do it, the more I do this nightly review the more I'm aware or the more um, I get that divine inspiration of where I've been selfish and fearful. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Thank you so much, Lisa. All right. Next we have Judy uh, followed by Sue B. Judy, your turn. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, Larry. And thank you to Lisa. Lisa, I want to say that wonderful to listen to you this morning. If I listen to your story closely, we have very little in common um, in our lives, but absolutely everything in common under the surface. Um, and your honesty really got to me, especially about the anger. And I know that, that you had addressed the anger issues a little bit with caller, the callers right before me. But my question to you is how do you handle all those social situations? I know that you said you told your daughter you were not going to have a cupcake and saying no is, is wonderful. I'm able to do that sometimes. But in the social situations, I often feel pulled towards the food still. And um, I wondered if you have something that you do particularly that helps you in those situations. Um, thank you again. And with that, I pass. Um, thank you, Judy, for your question. Um, you know, I have not, um, I've not been pulled um, by the food uh, in a long time. Um, 
like I said, I, I used to, you know, I have, I'm in a book club and once a month that was like a field day, you know, it was like a, a buffet. Um, and I, again, I would, that phenomenon of craving would, um, get me going. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I put down, I mean, I wrote down the date that I became abstinent. Um, I wish I could, like many people say, I wish I could remember the date that, um, I no longer had this pull of the food. Um, about three months into abstinence, my husband said to me, do you miss it? And I said, you know, really, I don't. And then he said, well, it looks like you've, you know, gotten to this place of what we call neutrality. Um, but occasionally, so I, you know, the interesting things that I think of, like, um, my daughter's probably going to get engaged and get married in the next year or so. And one of the things I adored is wedding cake. I absolutely love wedding cake. And I think about her reception. Um, and I also think, in all honesty, no one is going to care if I don't have wedding cake because no one's going to be looking at me. They are all going to be looking at her. Um, you know, uh, I have gotten to this point where I can have sweets in my house. I don't often, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't buy my binge foods. I mean, again, it's just me and my husband. So, um, and, and the longer I have been without sugar and most flour, um, he is happy not to have it as well. Um, I, I will admit to you that last night we went out to dinner and it was this beautiful, sunny, warm evening. And we got into the car and I said, you know, if I, would, if I was a sugar eater, tonight would be a nice night for ice cream. <laughs> and we kind of laughed about it. And, um, I, and the, the, the bad part was, is he ended up with the ice cream, which was, which was fine. Um, but in terms, I, I guess that I haven't, I just haven't been drawn I just haven't been drawn to the food, and and that happened with no no action on my part. That was completely um, my higher powers doing. I don't I can't explain it any other way. Thanks, thanks for the question, Judy. Okay, now we have Sue B. Sue, it's your it's your turn. You're up. Thank you, Larry, and thank you for your service. Can you hear me? I can. You're coming through loud and clear. Good. And, and I also want to thank the speaker um, as well. And like the previous questioner, I could relate to so many things on on the food level, and not and some personal things as well. And uh, I have to just say, my husband is not an alcoholic or a food addict, and. And I struggle sometimes because of that, making two different meals or eating out and and uh, trying to stay abstinent most of the time. But I guess I really I guess now because of all the other questions, I really don't have a question other than a great big thank you for sharing and making everything so relevant. Uh, I just really appreciate that, and I. Have tell you one quick story. Um, when I was asked to do a self-portrait when I was close to 200 pounds, I drew a thin person. 
a thin me. And and I didn't even think about the fat. So I think all of us have this thin person inside of us that wants to come out. And or a regular weight person inside of us that wants to come out. And and I thank you so much for your share and so much for vision that is helping my inside match my outside and vice versa. So God bless you. Bye. Thank you. And if you don't mind me adding one thing, Larry, um, you know, a lot of us compulsive overeaters are married people. And for me, I mean, the benefit for me is that my husband has been recovered for a long time um, and he gets, he understands the steps. And so he knew um, what I was doing when I was doing it. Um, but one of the things that I can, I, I want to encourage and encourage my sponsees to do is I had to be completely honest with my husband, which was not my, not my, uh, my behavior when I was in the food. Um, but I had to, you know, again, he watched me go through every diet and, you know, he tried to support me as best he could. Um, but I had to be honest with him at the very beginning and tell him that this is what I was attempting to do. Um, you know, because, and again, he kind of knew what I was doing and was supportive of me not bringing my binge foods into the house. You know, so, um, you know, people that have been married for a long time hopefully can say to their spouse, you know, um, I need this support and I I honestly need this support. All right. We'll open up. I think we're going to go to just about the top of the hour, if that's okay with you, Lisa, um, if there are other questions. Who who else would like to ask a question of Lisa? Nadia B. My name is Gladys. I have a question. Okay, followed by Gladys. Anybody else? Okay, let's start with uh, Nadia. Yeah, hi. This is uh, this is Peter. I'd like to ask a question too. Sure, Peter. I got you. Okay, let's go with that. Um, that may take us to the top of the hour. Um, let's start with Nadia. Nadia, your question. Thank you so much, Larry, for your service. This is Nadia B., a graceful, recovered, compulsive overeater in Connecticut. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much. I, um, you know, have a question since you were talking about um, the family life. And, um, you know, I still struggle with finding um, balance between um, people-pleasing and service in my home, you know, in my married life and with my family. Um, is there, you know, anything you used, any tips um, that you uh, could give me? And thank you. Oh. Thank you, Nadia. That's a great question. Um, when I was trying to think when I um, came home from my trip to Italy, um, and I, I, uh, I have a spiritual director. And one of the things that she said to me was, um, and this was before I went back to work, so I was sort of in between. And again, my children don't live here. It's just me and my husband. And um, she said to me, what would it look like if for the next six weeks, I think she said six weeks, you 
just be rather than do. Um, and, and this was a, this was a real challenge for me. Um, and I, I had to really, for me, I had to sit down. Um, one of the things she also said to me is, um, asked me to make a list of the things that were life giving to me and the things that were life sucking (laughs) to me. And, um, because the things that were life sucking to me were the people pleasing things that I was trying to do. Um, and so, um, I slowly, I mean, it's, it's a process just like working these steps is a process, um, to stop doing, um, doing so much, um, and, and looking at the things that are life giving to me. Um, and, and it just so happened that some of the things that I did outside of my home, um, started to drop away. Um, I didn't, you know, cut them off. And so, um, I have to be very careful. The other thing I will say is that my relationship with my husband who, with whom I am now married almost 28 years, um, really, I feel like needs a lot of my attention because for so long, um, I was so selfish and so self-centered. I mean, I say to him often, I'm so sorry it took me so long to wake up. Um, so I, I, I'm putting now more a priority on that probably than I am on the outside things that I do. Um, I hope that helps. Okay. Uh, Gladys, it's your turn. Yeah, my name is Gladys F. Uh, thank you for your lead. I'm so glad that I got a chance to, <clears throat> I'm on my way to work, but I got a chance to get up and hear it and uh, your story. And I related to a lot, you know, it just always amazed me, you know, when members talk about, you know, how people in their life constantly um, talk about the size, you know, the the, the obesity and uh but my experience, I started gaining weight at about nine. I don't really recall anybody, my mother or sister. I know there's a lot of obesity on my father's side of the family or friends or, like, neighbors. Ever saying it to me directly, you know, it, it was like I was always the one telling people how to lose weight, you know, when I was obese, you know, and... But at the end of the road, I was in a romantic relationship, and it kind of came hard on me. It was more like the weight he was complaining about me being too fat, and I, like, didn't get it, you know. And um, But not to just, I was just saying that for, you know, identification and everything. Um, but I, I came to OA, and I struggled a lot, you know, with the program. But now I'm on the vision for you uh, meeting, working with the sponsor, and and she's taking me through the doctor's opinion. And you mentioned something about um, the psychic change, and that was like one of my questions. I noticed in your in your lead, you said um, it's the steps, you know, and that sort of cleared it up for me a little bit. But I was wondering if you can, you know, like. Uh, maybe have a little more information you would like to share with me about the psychic change. 
Um, thank you, Gladys. Um, <clears throat> I think really it started for me um, when I uh, when my uh, system, my brain, my body was cleared of the sugar. Um, you know, which was fairly early on. I mean, again, that was just a beginning. <clears throat> um, I had, again, looking back, I had no idea how much sugar I was consuming that I actually had physical withdrawal from it. Um, you know, and then uh, the power of doing the fourth step, um, looking at my part because I was always blaming everybody else. I was the victim, um, you know, poor, poor pitiful Lisa. Um, but this process, I mean, you know, it, it, for me, it has been this step process. Um, I think that this, the psychic change came in, you know, didn't, you know, all of a sudden the bright light, but it sort of came, um, came in steps, came in pieces, you know, that step four and giving it away in step five. Um, probably, and again, the, the, the powerful, the powerfulness of step nine for me, um, the, the humility of being able to make honest amends. Uh, to be, uh, to be honest, I didn't ever think I could do it. I w- I think I thought this is going to be too scary. Um, but my higher power was there at every turn um, and, and, and gave me the, um, the willingness and, and the strength and the courage really to, to make those amends, which I really did not think I could do. But um, so again, I wish I could, I wish I had a date when I could say that this is when it happened. But again, it, I think it's just been, the process of these steps. And I would say specifically um, finishing those amends on step nine, because it was just like this load <laughs> again, um, um, physical, actual physical load. And then, and then not, not physical load taken off of my shoulders. Um, uh, and again, I have to, uh, I have to maintain it every day. Um, I hear about people, uh, in relapse. And I wonder how that happens, but I know that if I don't, um, do this on a daily basis, that I could be back in the food. There's no question about it. Gladys, thank you for your question. And I believe our last question then would be Peter. Peter. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. Thanks for your service, Larry. Lisa, thanks for your story. It was amazing. Um, yeah, my question is a little bit of a, it's a little bit off the wall here, but, uh, you know, it's something that I've, I, I've been thinking about too, because it affects me is, um, you know, this program, uh, for me is super powerful, right? Particularly steps four and steps nine. And it's, like a, it's a kind of a weight off my shoulders. And, um, you know, what has happened is that after particularly step nine and, uh, turning, you know, will over to, uh, to God, as I call my higher power, and then, um, um, you know, having the power to sort of act, uh, things uh, start to, the ship starts to right itself pretty quickly, okay? And, um, you know, Lisa, that's when I'm most at risk. You know, when mm. things are going well, 
the part of there's a part of me that is I think in the disease that says, hey, the only reason it's good because because you know Peter, you're so cool, you know, and so you must be in control of this thing. The reason that you know that the outcome is so good, and so I find I'm very much at risk, you know, when uh, you know things have started taking a turn for the better. And I'm more like, what do you do when things are good? to be sure that, you know, one stays on track. When things are not going good, I know exactly what to do, right? Uh, on the other side of the equation, though, is this, um, I don't know, maybe false euphoria on my part uh, that makes all the, you know, nonsense that got me here in the first place uh, reappear. Okay, so that's my question. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question because I, actually I was thinking yesterday that you know, my history would be when things are really crappy um, and I'm miserable and wallowing in my self-pity, that's when I would turn to my higher power. And in the times of happiness and joy, yeah, I mean, I, uh, when things are going good, I would be less likely um, to turn to my higher power. So what I would say for me um, is that I start out my day the same way every day. I mean, I, I'm fortunate that, I mean, I happen to be an early riser. And so I start out my day the same way with prayer and meditation every day and then listening to a vision for you. Um, <clears throat> and I wish I had, could tell you the number of the times that my sponsor said to me, we can't rest on our laurels. Um, because right now for me, things are really good. Things are really great. Um, and probably that's the time when I need most to be working with others and to be carrying the message as best I can, um, either on the phone line or, or locally. Um, you know, one of, my, one of my character defects is being judgmental. Um, and um, it's easy, again, easy for me to get on my high horse thinking, I, you know, I've got this. I've got it figured out. Um, I can do it on my own. And again, that's when I'm going to get into trouble. So I think that probably for me, again, I, I continue this daily practice. Um, and, then, and then the other part is, is working with others, really, um, is, is giving away what I have received. Thank you. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your story of hope. Uh, beautiful story. Um, so now we're going to, uh, and Lisa will leave her contact information after the, the end of the recorded period. Now I'm going to close with page 164, as we do. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until.